Please open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Samuel. Chapter 1, we'll study verses 21 through 28. First Samuel chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Hear the reading of God's holy word. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, as we read the ancient history of your people before your face, we pray that you would teach us, O Lord, that you would instruct our minds and our hearts, that we might be a people that would love godliness, that, Lord, we might be a people that would strive after your heart and desire your glory. Help us, O Lord, as we take up your word together. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Last week we began our study in the book of 1 Samuel and we read about the household of a man named Elkanah. And you may recall that he was a Levite, that he lived in the land of Ephraim and had some relationship to the city of Bethlehem. You may also remember how he had two wives. He had one wife named Penina and then another named Hannah. Penina had many children. Conceivably, she was what would have been called a second wife. It seems that she was taken because of the barrenness of Hannah, who we consider to have been his first wife, as the text tells us earlier in chapter 1, she was the wife he loved. And we learned that not only did Hannah have a painfully endured barrenness, but that she was harassed by her husband's other wife and that this harassment took place roughly once a year when they went up for the festival worship and the vow-keeping of this family of the people of God. 
Not only that, but this happened year after year, and at one time, at some point in their life, that she cried out to God. And in her cry, she pleaded in prayer for a child, a little boy, that she might take to her breast and hold in her arms. And she made a vow to the Lord that if she would be given a son, that she would give him back to God. As we concluded our study last week, we read that God heard her pleading prayer and that God honored her vow and that he did give her a son and that she named him Samuel. And now we return to the text and we'll study how Hannah kept her vow. And the three things I want us to see in the passage is firstly that God's glory is more important than our desires. God's glory is more important than our desires. Secondly, that God's purposes are higher than ours. God's purposes are higher than ours. And then in the third place, that God's hands are trustworthy. That his hands are trustworthy. So as we come into this portion of chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, we are three, possibly four years removed from the day of her prayer. After all, we were told that she prayed and she went home with Elkanah, that he knew his wife and that she conceived because the Lord remembered her. We're unsure about the timeline. Uh, It is, after all, a Jewish tradition that she likely would have weaned her son at three years of age. And then, of course, there's also speculation that it could be a little bit longer or a little bit less. Nonetheless, it is a space of time. And friends, I don't know if you've already caught this, but this is a shocking passage of Scripture if we take it seriously. And I want to tell you that it's more than just an ancient story. This is not folklore. This is a historical account of the life of a woman who lived in faith under her God and her relationship to a real son that was really born of her womb. And it's an account where we have God answering this sincere and believing prayer of one of his children. But I'll have to say that very personally, this passage tonight records for us the extraordinary account of a mother giving away her child. Now, if that hasn't struck you, then check your pulse. Every parent in the room has to be sitting at least a little bit on the edge of their seat. Some of them tonight might be thinking, well, it wouldn't be bad for a little break from the kids, but she gave him away for the whole of his life. This is a significant story. This is a significant historical account. After all, this is a mother who her heart was burdened to simply have a child. She knew what it was to endure her barrenness. We don't know how long this stretched. It stretched long enough for her husband to look elsewhere for the giving of children so that he might have some inheritors of his own household. She wanted this child, and this again is her only begotten son. She wanted this child so badly that on her hands and knees she pleaded before the Lord. Not just anywhere. It wasn't in the private prayer closet, but rather before the door of the synagogue of God 
a temple which was set up in Shiloh. When we read, she was so moved in her spirit whenever she prayed that her lips moved but no sound came out and that it was, as it were, spiritual worship, silent and heard by the spiritual and everlasting ears of God. And this is the account of this mother who just wanted a child, who just wanted a son specifically. This is her account of her taking this beloved three to four year old little boy over a day's journey on foot away to give him into the hands of the priest Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who later in chapter 2 we're going to read were not trustworthy men. They weren't good men. They weren't good priests. In fact, they end up rejected by God for their abuses in the office before the Lord. And so we might ask the question as we approach the passage, how could she? How could she give her son away? How could she do it? Her only begotten son. She loved this child. This wasn't even a heartbreaking delivery room adoption being put forward. That's not what this is. This is a child she knows and she loves. One that she spent countless hours with looking into his eyes, consoling him when he cried, feeding him and nursing him with her own body. How is this possible? How is this possible? Well, the answer is, of course, if we read the Scriptures, that she is simply keeping her vow to God. She said that she would give him over, and here she is doing so. You and I live in a day, in an age, when vows mean very, very little, it seems. Marriages come, marriages go, and the vow that's attached to them seems to mean nothing. It's just something tossed in the air. Almost nothing. Maybe it's heartbreak, maybe it's financial loss, maybe it's, in reality, a very broken family, the damage and injury it does to children. But those who made the vow in the first part don't keep it, they don't mind anything of it. Just tossed away. In a more present context, the vows that we take for church membership. Often those things are taken and they're put down and there's almost no thought of it. I mean, people come year-long in this church, Sunday after Sunday, sometimes we've been so blessed to have four or five families, and they take vows here. There's nothing special about this block of stone, nothing special about whatever this little stage thing is. It's a vow. It's a promise before God that's taken. That's what makes it serious. That's what makes it something more than just an empty promise. It is a promise and a covenanting with God. So I want to tell you that this passage, it's so shocking and it's only possible for a mother to give up her son like this because she was keeping her vow to God. Now it wasn't only that she said that she would give her son to the Lord, is it? She had another vow on top of it, a vow that directly impacted the life of the boy. In fact, I think it's a right thing to say that the mother took a vow, a spiritual vow, for him. 
Now, that might sound strange. It's something we're definitely not, you know, uh, used to in the life of modern society that a parent would do something uh, that really has to do with the choice of a child, or at least we might presume it to be so. But here she takes a Nazarite vow, as it's called in the book of Numbers, that her son will be set apart, that he'll be sanctified by very definite acts, and that he'll be holy to the Lord. It's not only that he'll be a priest given into the service of God, but that he'll be a man holy from his birth. Something to note is that Nazarites, they didn't cut their hair. Uh, Nazarites didn't touch dead bodies. And there are a few other things that have to do uh, with the Nazarite vow. But that those vows were normally taken for a period of time. It's not a thing that's in perpetuity for the whole course of the life of a man. But in this case, with the man Samuel, that's the picture. She took a vow not only to submit her son into the hands of God for his service, but also specifically that he would live a life restricted and given to God. And what we come to find in verses 21 through 28 is that she labors at this. Of course, we read the account of Elkanah going up, and then there's this interaction between Elkanah and Hannah, verse 22. Hannah says simply this, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him up so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. She's taking it seriously. She's got to prepare this little boy, this infant, a toddler, to go and become a boy priest, to live a life devoted to God in every way, not just in the labor of ministry, but in a labor even of his own soul. And some people come to this uh, passage of Scripture. They struggle with it a bit. The blood gets pumping, I, I don't know. And the only thing that I can describe it as whenever I've read some commentators is they have a sympathetic imagination. Right? Some of them, they come to this passage of Scripture and they imagine that this is some sort of vacation Bible school. Hannah took little Samuel by the hand and they went on a day trip and She'd go and she'd give him over to Eli and Hophni and Phinehas for a time of training and then go back. Some also imagine this to be kind of a boarding school. that Maybe she'd send him for a season or, you know, whatever, a month, three months, and then she'd have him back for a time. But that's not at all what's happening. No, this passage of Scripture regards her keeping her vow to give him entirely to God. In verse 22, we read that she is telling her husband, her husband Elkanah, that after she weans him, that this child will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's going to go in. The house of the Lord will become his house, his home. That's where he'll be. Verse 26, whenever she reminds Eli of her vow, she also then expresses this vow again in very, very, very clear terms. It's not for a period of time. She says, he is given to the Lord as long as he lives. The whole course of his life. He's been the Lord's even as he was at her breast, but now as he's weaned and can eat solid food, he goes into the temple to become a child priest. It's unique. It is a 
heartfelt, sincere, and faithful to the God who providentially gave her the child of her request. But again, you have to ask the question, how can this happen? Of course, Pastor, we know that you've told us that she's keeping a vow. Keeping a vow, that makes good sense. But still, how could it happen? I mean, after all, people make vows today and people break those vows. Vows can be hard to keep and this seems like, well, an extreme vow. Maybe it even seems a little bit like the vow that Jephthah made, right, in the book of Judges, where he said he'd kill anything. The first thing that comes out of the door and what was it that was the sacrifice to be killed unto the Lord? Well, it was his daughter. A silly vow. I don't think that's what this is at all. I think this is a vow that is heartfelt, sincere, and it perceives in itself the really essential aspect of what a vow is. That a vow is a holy promise or covenant with God that when it is kept, brings God glory and that God purposes for the blessing of His people. I think that's her heart. I don't think it's reckless. Again, I'll read this to you if you want to write it down as a definition or try to get it in your mind and heart. This is rough, but nonetheless. A vow is a holy promise or covenant with God that when it is kept brings God glory, and that God purposes for the blessing of his people. You've heard me say, and maybe you've been one of our people who have made a vow in this church, that to keep a vow is holiness and righteousness. To break a vow, not keep a vow, what is that? Sin, right? It's sin. Why? Because it does not glorify God says, I'll have it my way, not his way. I'll have what I desire, not what he desires. My purpose in this, for my life, for this marriage, for this relationship with the church, I'll have it my way. It just turns the whole thing on its head. Once again, I want to tell you that Hannah is simply keeping a vow with her heart. And there are three things, those points of the sermon that I want to point out to you this evening that I believe are the heart of why she can keep this undoubtedly difficult vow. The first, that God's glory is more important than our desires. Again, the vow was to give her son. If the Lord would give her a son, then she would give him back to the Lord. Again, this is her only son, the son that she desired, the son that she prayed for, the son that she received because of prayer, and the son that upon her breast she continued to pray for. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2, verse 19, we come to find out that this isn't Hannah's response to the difficult twos, the terrible threes, or however they call it, the children, but that she did love him. First Samuel 2.19, we read, or we will read and study, but I'll read it to you now, that her relationship was such that once a year she would come up to the boy in Shiloh, probably with the family, probably in the course of the regular worship of the people of God, and that his mother used to make for him a little robe. 
and that she would take it to him each year. Do you understand what's being talked about here? Again, I mentioned to you that the boy was a priest. That's what he's doing there. He's not just a child being taken into the adoption care of priests like sometimes happens today. No, his mother has devoted him for a task and she loved him in the task to the point where she would make for him the little garments of a priest. This is the description of a child's ephod, the unique garment that a priest would wear whenever they would go about the daily task of conducting the worship of the God of Israel. She loved him. Just think of it. Here's Hannah, the woman who loved her son and gave him over. And what is she doing in her spare time? Well, each day she's thinking. Maybe she's looking at other four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds and taking measurements as she looks at them because her son is more than a day's journey away. Maybe he's this tall. Maybe he's this tall. I need to buy this much fabric, this much fabric for the sake of doing this. This is a day quite obviously before sewing machines and electricity. This is a day of bone needles, possibly bronze needles. And she's stitching it by hand. She's thinking of the boy with every stitch, with every time she pricks her finger. It's his face in her mind and in her heart. She loves this child. It would be a strange and alien thing, and I just submit it to the moms in the room, to ever think that there would ever be a day when you didn't desire to have your children with you. As a father, I can simply say, though I didn't nurse my boys, I would never imagine a day where I don't want them. I delight in them. I desire for them to be close to me and near to me. But here's Hannah, a woman who has received a child by God's mercy child that she has promised for the sake of the glory of God, for His use. And in all of this, all of this heart, all of her desires for the child, all of her love for this little boy, she saw God's glory more in keeping her vow and is infinitely more important than keeping her son to herself. It's a hard thing to get our heads around. That she was about God's glory more than she was even concerned with keeping her desire to have her child near her. It's a right of every mother to have their child near them, isn't it? She says God's glory is a greater priority. Very few vows that we take come even close to this sort of thing. But I want to press you, Christians. If you take a vow, I want to press you that God's glory is more important than your desires. The glory of God and you keeping your vow is more important than your desire to be in another church, in a different place, with more music, with more programs. A place that you think you'll be more comfortable. Or out of the church, at home, on your couch, comfortable. Socks on, football on the TV. 
fulfilling your desires for more rest to simply stay in bed instead of get up and be in the midst of God's people. God's glory is more important than all of what you desire. God's glory is more important than the keeping of our vows than looking after that handsome man or woman that passes by or acting on the lust of the heart, the eyes. God's glory is more important. Oftentimes we try to keep our vows just because of how lovely we find our spouses, how much we love him or her. It's insufficient. We have to be people about the glory of God first and foremost, that that is more valuable. Secondly, God's purposes are higher than ours. This is a thought that dominates the heart, I would submit to you, both of Hannah and also of the man Elkanah, her husband. We've talked about him mostly last week. We focused upon him, but here in the passage that we have this evening, we come into it in the context of Elkanah going to offer worship to the Lord, a yearly sacrifice, and in verse 21, and to pay his vow. We don't know what vow that is. This is presumably his vow that he took. This isn't her vow. This is something that he set for himself before the Lord. He's a holy man. He respects the purposes of God. Then as he interacts with Hannah and talks to her about her going up, Hannah's saying, I want to wean him from my breast first and then submit him into the service of God forever. This is what he says in response to her. He says, okay, do what seems good to you, only that the Lord would establish his word. Only that the Lord would establish his word. Now, as you read that in English or German or whatever translation you've got, you may scratch your head a little bit. Well, where did this come into play? The Lord keeping his word. Aren't we talking about, you know, him keeping his vow, her keeping her vow? I mean, First, we said the word, word, in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. What's going on? Well, this is a phrase that reveals the faith of the man, Elkanah. It's as if he's saying, may the Lord continue to do what he has begun. He heard you in prayer. He remembered you and answered your prayer. He gave you a boy. May the Lord establish His Word. May He continue to do the work that He's begun. This child of a vow, a child of a promise. May the Lord grow him up. It's it's a word of of faith from the man Elkanah who is hoping in the purposes of God saying simply, may God use him. See, Elkanah is living in the household and in some relationship to both Hannah and Samuel. He sees the things that go on in the house. He understands the way in which Hannah and he both orchestrate the life of the child so that the child may keep his Nazarite vow even as a a wandering, bumbling toddler. And this word simply says, I believe God has a purpose in this and may the Lord do it. May he keep and finish the thing that he started. But you go on and you continue to read. 
And the reality that we're faced with is that as Hannah, as Hannah is nursing the child at her breast and preparing him to go and to live in Shiloh and to eat the food that priests eat, you know, the sacrificed meat and fat from these animals, enjoy the bread that's then given over, how could she have ever guessed what the Lord would do? There's no way. I mean, even in her vow, she doesn't ask the Lord to make him anything great. She just simply says, I'm going to give him to you. That's the structure of her vow. She doesn't say, Lord, give me a child and make him king. She doesn't do that. She doesn't say, Lord, give me a child and make him a prophet. She doesn't do that at all. She doesn't say, make him a scholar, make him wealthy or anything of the sort. She says, Lord, give me a child, I give him back to you. She just longed to hold the boy, to nurse him at her breast. And it was hidden in the purposes of God that she just simply believed the Lord would do something with him. That he would be the one who would call and anoint kings. That he would bear the word of God in his mouth afresh as a prophet. It's, I think, enough to say that Hannah simply believed that God works out His purposes and that she would keep her vow not knowing what the purposes of God are, but believing that, her, that His purposes are greater than her own. God's purposes are higher than ours. The keeping of vows, God's purposes are higher than ours. You and I don't know how to peer into the mind of God, the heart of God. The closest we have is 66 books that show us so much of God. But the chronological unfolding of the purposes and the will of God, how can we know these things? There's a phrase that uh, I laugh at every time I hear it or even if I sometimes accidentally say it. In the foreseeable future. The foreseeable future. What kind of silliness is this? I tell you, if anything that living in Germany has taught me is that a weather forecast is no forecast at all. We're called to simply believe in the purposes of God. That He has good purposes, that they are higher than ours, and that He will bring them about. But then there's a third thing that's implicit. And I think it's because of what we don't see in the passage. And it's that God's hands are trustworthy. And what is it that we don't see here? We don't see a hesitant mother. Do we? Some commentators read this and they try to interpret the keeping of the child at her breast. And, you know, for two years, three years, however long it was, possibly even four years, is this her not giving him over? I think this is simply a mercy to the men to whom she's giving him over to. There's one thing that men are just simply ill-equipped, and that is to feed a hungry baby unless they have a bottle and some modern formula to give them. She's not a hesitant mother. She trusted God with her son. She trusted God with her son, even in the face of the reality that though Eli was a faithful priest, his sons are not. Some people might say, well, does she even know that? About Hophni and Phinehas. 
Yes. When we read the next chapter, you're going to see this so painfully and clearly. These men were known as crooked priests. If it were this day and age, they would be men that took the tithes and just stuck it in their own pocket. Moreover, they would have also been men that would have knocked on your door as they looked over your shoulder as the baskets come through the church and they would have noticed, well, maybe you didn't give enough or anything or what they thought you should give. And they knock on your door and say, where's your tithe? That's the kind of guys they were. Give it to us or we'll take it by force. You're going to see this in the next chapter. She knows about this. This news gets back to their father, Eli, because it's the rumor about the people of God that these men are wicked. She still trusts God with her son. She gives Samuel into the household of Eli, into the temple service, even knowing that these are the men that he's going to live with. And she says, the boy will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice it's not the house of Eli. Not the house of Hophni or Phinehas. It's the Lord's house. That's the one to whom she entrusts her son. There's no word of panic. She comes and with a boy well prepared, presents him to Eli. I'm that woman that you saw praying with lips moving but no sound coming forth. I'm that woman. This is the child that God gave me in response to that day when you blessed me and said, may the Lord give him to you. I'm that woman and here's my son and I've come to fulfill my vow. There's no weeping. There's no distress. There's no panic. There's no tearing of the cloth. How is this even remotely to be explained? She believes that God's hands are trustworthy. That if she submits her child to him, the Lord will do him no harm. That the Lord will care for him. That he will establish her son. It's as simple as that. In this church, we baptize infants. No secret, we're Presbyterians, and that means we're Paedo-Baptists because we believe the covenant is to not only believers, but also their children. There is a variety of opinion in our church, but that is the doctrine of the PCA. When we do that, we don't believe that the child is saved by baptismal water. You know that. You've heard it over and over again. You know that we don't believe that there's anything miraculous or special in the water child's head. There's no hocus pocus in the words. But when we make that vow for our child, we are saying simply this, I trust God with him, with her. I want God to be in this child's life. I'm praying that this God, my God, will be the God of my children. Lord, remember that you said you'd be my God and the God of my children. We baptize children in trust that God will answer His promises and save them and give them a profession of faith that's true. How often do we follow that vow with a life that endeavors to see our children raised up and submitted to the hands of God? With a word open to them. With their little bottoms and big seats 
in the services of the church, enduring the sounds of children, because we believe that God is trustworthy to bless his word, to keep his promises, to care for our children, to convert their souls, and to make them into saints. God's hands are trustworthy. They're trustworthy with our children. They're also trustworthy with us. If we keep our vows to Him, the Lord will answer them in faithfulness. He'll bless us in this life or He'll bless us in the life to come because He is a good God. May the Lord bless us this evening. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, for the account of the life of Samuel. Lord, the devotion of Hannah and Elkanah. Lord, for the testimony of your faithfulness. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to be people who would keep vows. Lord, that we would not break our oaths to you. That, Lord, we would honor you and glorify you because of what we believe about you, not what we believe about ourselves. Father in heaven, give us strength, Lord, that we might please you, or that we might do all things before your face, hoping simply that you will be known amongst men and that you will delight in the eternity of your own perfections. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name.